Let us open our Bibles. This is week number three of Advent. Uh, talked about Joseph. Rob did a great job last week talking about Mary. I did watch it. I sat on the couch. I drank my uh, wood bark burnt coffee um, and, uh, and watched uh, the service last week uh, on Mary. And then this week, if you remember when I uh, outlined what we were going to talk about, I was going to talk about the devil, right? Does anybody remember that was part of the uh, outline? Well, that is what we're going to talk about. We are going to talk about the devil and sin at Christmas. Isn't that what everybody wants to hear? So this morning is going to be unique. I did this three years ago and uh, just thought this would go well. It's not a normal sermon because I am going to be reading a short story by John Bloom. He wrote this uh, an ad, as a part of their Advent writing at Desiring God. He did that back in December of 2018. Totally blew me away. How many of you remember when I read the short story three years ago? Raise your hand if you remember. How many of you did not hear the short story read? Okay, so there's enough of you this morning that this will be a real, real treat. Uh, but before we do that, in order for... Um, our Advent sermon this morning to really make sense in conjunction with this story that John Bloom wrote, I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. So, Revelation is not normally the book you go to when you're talking about Christmas, but it is today. We're going to read the entire chapter, and let me just go ahead and tell you, your brain is going to furiously try to connect dots. Is that what you guys do when you read Revelation? Like you're going to be trying to like, where, what is this, like the crazy guy that's got all the strings and the, and the uh, thumbtacks and the, trying to figure out how it all goes together? I want to ask you to try not to do that as best you can. Um, but it's kind of obvious in one sense what's being talked about. Um, so just listen, let the words of Revelation 12 just kind of flow over you and into your soul uh, as, we, uh, as we hear the backdrop for our story on sin and the devil at Christmas time. Verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, 
For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now the, it just keeps going. We got beasts and all kinds of stuff in the next chapter. But we're not going to get, we're not reading all of that today. That is a very important backdrop to the story that I'm going to read you today um, about the dragon slayer and it's based strongly out of Revelation 12 and a lot of other scripture. So Daryl, I don't know if you were able to do it, but to make your lives a little easier, we are going to put the words of the story up on the screen as I read it so everybody can follow along. Is that helpful for everybody? Or do you just like to close your eyes and listen? Well, we're going we're gonna to put it up. So, um, here we go. Everybody ready to follow along? This is not a normal sermon, I admit, but this is really important to get across the importance of what Jesus has done and the Christmas story in relation to Satan and to sin. There once was a great dragon, red like blood. He was a terrible serpent, ancient beyond human memory. His power and cunning were beyond human reckoning, and he was evil beyond all depraved human imagination. And the dragon was real. He did not inhabit the realms of fairy tale or nightmare. Their horrors were but his shadows cast in legends. No, the dragon inhabited the real world of men, though imperceptible to their eyes and ears, unless, of course, being perceived, served his wicked purposes. And the dragon abhorred man. He hated them out of his virulent, bitter hatred for the high king who had created man. For, you see, the dragon too was a creature, having been fashioned by the king in ages long past, though not as a dragon, but as a magnificent prince. Once upon a time, this prince was numbered among the great ones. He was a god in the holy council of the high king over all gods. But deep in the labyrinth channels of this prince's heart, pride began to run like a toxic sap, poisoning his loves and his thoughts. The greater he became in his own eyes, the more his true greatness diminished. Self-deceived, the prince strove for greater glory than he possessed. He desired glory not bestowed by the king's grace, but glory all his own, self-achieved and self-ascribed. In the deeps of his heart, he exchanged the glory of the high king for a false image of himself he had come to love. And in doing so, he exchanged the truth for a lie, 
and worshipped his creaturely self rather than the creator king, making himself a rival of the king. Therefore the prince was cast down from his exalted place in the council of the great and hurled out of the king's presence. He fell like lightning to the earth. There the king gave the treacherous prince up to the wicked passions of his heart, and he, who was once numbered among the gods, became the most dreadful of dragons. A time was then fixed by the king for the dragon's final judgment. So when this dragon saw that the high king had fashioned mankind in his own image, that he had made them gods as he had once been, and had given them to rule over the earth, he was enraged. He burned with bitter hatred and longed to shatter these images of the one he hated most. Then a wicked, a wicked plan took place, took shape in his brilliant, futile mind, which pleased his darkened heart. If he could entice the man-gods to turn against the king, as he had done, they too would share his terrible fate. They too would be cast from the king's presence. They too would become objects of the king's just and terrible wrath. And the sovereign sentence upon them would be irrevocable, just like the sentence upon him. But even more desirable, the dragon would enjoy one great triumph. He would succeed in stealing the king's glory by defacing the king's image, woven into the very flesh and bone of these feeble gods. And before his dreaded day of judgment, he would remake these fallen gods into lesser dragons, images of himself, which he would enslave to wreak wanton destruction in the world the king had made. Let the high king destroy him with omnipotence. He would leave an unfading scar upon the everlasting father, the eternal perishing of the king's prized people. It could not fail to diminish the king's joy. So into the peopled garden crept the crafty condemned serpent. He presented himself to the image bearers as a bearer of enlightenment. He promised them the fruit of godly wisdom if they would but set aside the king's sole prohibition and simply think for themselves. For were they not also gods? Surely possessing the king's wisdom and knowledge would increase their glory, for they would be even more like the high king than they yet were. As they pondered the dragon's cunning lies, pride began to seep into the heart channels of the image bearers. They believed the dragon's dark light. They simply thought for themselves, only to discover too late how great was this light's darkness. In horror, they soon realized the serpentine promise yielded foolishness, not wisdom, death, not life, alienation from the king, not greater likeness to the king. In rejecting the king's command, they had rejected the king's rule. They had become the king's enemies. Theirs was treason of the highest order, and for such a crime against such a king, there was only one sentence, destruction. The dragon exalted as the deeply grieved king cast his broken images out of the blessed garden of his favor into a world now cursed, one the dragon could now rule. He savored each sentence of judgment pronounced upon the fallen gods and relished the endragoning that must surely await them. But as the high king issued his just decrees, the dragon heard an ominous promise. The great serpent's head would one day be crushed under a human foot. These words made him writhe in fury, and he resolved to keep a wary watch that he might destroy the foot before the blow could fall. But unknown to the dragon, Mysterious decrees had been uttered by the high king and the secret council of his will ages before the dragon existed 
conceived in wisdom unimaginable to a dragonly mind. Weary years passed as the cursed earth and its depraved inhabitants languished, languished in bondage to corruption. And then, in the fullness of the king's time, the ancient mysterious decrees began to unfold in an unexpected place and an unexpected way into the world stepped the dragon slayer. Despite the dragon's vigilance, the slayer appeared at first undetected. The snake had not foreseen such a mystifying entrance. When he awoke to his danger, he recognized in terror his long-expected foe was the very son of the high king. But what strangeness was this? The mighty one, born in the likeness of feeble man? To what end? And as a defenseless child in the care of a peasant? Quickly he sought to devour him in his fearful foot. But the slayer eluded the primeval assassin and waited for the appointed day with an unnerving quietness. Finally, the day drew near. But as it did, the dragon grew only more perplexed by his adversary. At times he displayed a dreadful power. The dragon expected this, yet the slayer proved the meekest and humblest of all mankind, and he gave himself no advantage. He made his home in a despised village in a reviled region. He sought no education, pursued no influential profession. He chose the weak and foolish as his followers, even a treacherous man as his close confidant. But the strong and wise he humiliated, and their envy and suspicion was infected with poisonous resentment, and thus he was rejected by those wielding power, becoming a threat they wished to eliminate. Even when his survival depended upon the approval of the great crowds he drew with mighty miracles, he drove them away with hard words. All this made the wily lizard wary. Such absurdity. This slayer appeared more bent on being crushed than on crushing the serpent. Well, if such was the slayer's wish, the serpent would grant it with relish. Then all at once, the dark stars aligned. The lethal leaders, the traitorous confidant, the disillusioned people, the faithless friends, the immoral tetrarch, and the pragmatic prefect, all aligned against the dragon slayer, and with terrible, brutal swiftness, the dragon struck. The great son of the high king lay slain in the bloody bed that he had made. The great dragon exulted more than before. He had achieved far beyond his wildest hopes. Not only had he disfigured the image bearers, he had slain the dragon slayer. It had been so easy, like a wolf upon a lamb. The crusher lay in defeated death, his foot sorely bruised. The serpent lived triumphant, head unscathed and unbent. When he faced the high king's omnipotent wrath, he would do so with his prodigious pride intact. Then came the morning of the dragon's nightmare. The morning of the son of the high king arose from his bed of blood and stood indestructible, unassailable, upon strong feet, scarred but without bruise. The great serpent looked upon the risen slayer, bewildered. Then the terrible truth dawned upon the ancient liar with blinding brightness. He had not crushed the crusher. He had slain the Lamb of God. He had not seen it. How had he not seen it? How had he not seen an altar of sacrifice in the Roman cross? An altar. An altar is for the expiation of sins. Who sins? 
not the unblemished sons, but the fallen gods of mankind. An altar is for the propitiation of wrath. Whose wrath? The high king's. No, no, it could not be. Could it? Had the great judge become guilty so man could be forgiven? Had the holy become unholy, that unholy man may become holy? And of course, the curse of death could not remain upon the sinless, willingly sacrificed. What a fool he'd been. But who would have thought such a thing? Just wrath he knew, but such loving mercy he did not, and lavished upon such undeserved creatures. The realization was excruciating. The son of the high king had not come to bring upon his head the final blow. Yet, the truth was far worse. The son had come to destroy all that the dragon had worked for so long. And oh, he had indeed left an unfading scar upon the everlasting father, but not the scar he planned, man's destruction. It was the scar of man's redemption. Waves of horror washed over him as he watched all his hopes collapse around him like a castle of cards in the wind. What he thought so wise proved foolish. What he thought so foolish was proved wise beyond comprehension. Whatever glory the dragon thought he had grasped in his terrible claws, the sun had just snatched away. The human son of the high king had indeed bruised his head, not with power, but with shame. The dragon's great foolishness was now on open display for the entire host of the high king to see. And every fallen human the king would redeem and restore through the son's sacrifice of unsurpassed love would be another bruise of shame upon his wicked head, and another ray of the king's glory, another surge of the king's joy. This was the worst possible sentence upon, being, upon a being of such diabolical pride. The dragon would die a billion deaths of shame before the dragon slayer finally destroyed him. With the great wrath of unfathomable humiliation, the dragon loosed a terrible roar. Now, I absolutely love that story. I love the idea of every single one of us being a bruise of shame that the devil endures in his cosmic error in crucifying the Lord of glory. Every time somebody comes to Christ, it is like an additional bruise of shame that the devil endures. I love that. The point of Christmas, and you see how in Revelation 12, the idea of the dragon waiting to destroy the sun, and we know that happened uh, with Herod and him sending out to kill all the, every male child born two years and under. And all, of the, all the intention of Satan to stop whatever it was God was doing, not knowing that he is fulfilling the very plan of God of redemption for humanity. Satan is a lackey on a leash. He is never in total control of anything. In fact, the way I want to end our sermon today is I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 3. Now, I would encourage you to go, you can look this up, you can go to Desiring God, go to the search function and type in 
dragons. Shockingly, there's about 12 articles. There's all kinds of fun articles there on dragons. Um, you can read however many you like. But find this article because if you see my copy, can you see all the red from clear back there? I don't know if you can see it. All the red that I've got underlined are links inside the article of scripture references. A lot of the phrases, if you, like this page is like almost entirely red. A lot of the phrases that uh, John Bloom used uh, are directly from Scripture throughout that story. And when you read that story, and click, if you read on the, the story and click on the links as you go, it'll take you about 30 minutes to read all of it. And it is just a really powerful Christmas story that tells of why Jesus came. And that's why I want to end here, 1 John chapter 3. It's gonna, we're going to read verse 7. 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared, the reason we celebrate Christmas and the arrival of the eight pounds, six ounces, baby Jesus, whatever, we don't know what he was. But the reason we uh, celebrate his arrival is because he came to destroy the works of the devil. And here, John tells us that the works of the devil specifically is the work of sin. Satan cannot make you sin, but he is really, really good at getting you to go along with the suggestions of sin. Now, when you and I sin, we are not just giving in to a temptation that we don't want to do, we are going along with something that we already want to do. The sinful part of us that we inherited from Adam and his fall wants to sin. And the devil is really good in his working throughout the world at getting you to have opportunities to commit sin. Has anybody noticed this at all throughout your life? Okay, we all know this, and this verse tells us that this work of the devil, who's been sinning from the beginning, has been destroyed by Jesus Christ. He came to destroy the works of the devil. That means that Jesus Christ, the dragon slayer, has destroyed Satan's ability to totally dominate your life from sin, or with sin, I should say. You and I, according to Romans, are not slaves of sin any longer. So we are to live, as John is telling us here, righteously. We, we all in our Christian life live in this tension of knowing what the right thing to do is because the Word of God 
tells us what the right thing is. It tells us what the wrong thing is. It highlights, we know what we, know what we are supposed to do. And then we find, like Paul said in Romans 7, ourselves falling short of that, constantly going before the Lord in asking for His mercy and His grace and His forgiveness, which He gives. But the only reason that we have any ground to stand on to go before the Lord and ask for help and ask for forgiveness is because Jesus destroyed the works of the devil, in particular, sin's dominion over mankind has been broken. But it's only broken through Jesus Christ. So the point of reading the Dragon Slayer story is one to get us thinking about the reality that Jesus came specifically on purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And because He has done so, you and I are no longer slaves to sin. And you and I are supposed to be telling the world that He has come and done this. That He has come to destroy the works of the sin of the world, the works of the devil. We are miniature testimonies. And you read, we read that in Revelation chapter 12 about them overcoming by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony and loving not their lives unto death. We are living testimonies to the reality that Jesus Christ has destroyed the works of the devil. We're supposed to be telling folks and we're supposed to be showing folks. Part of the way that we show that that work has been destroyed in our life is not trying to pretend that we ourselves are perfect, but that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is interceding for us every day, and that when we sin, we humbly acknowledge it and ask for forgiveness. We are not trying to live uh, as if, uh, or try to pretend that we're perfect. We're supposed to strive to live holy as He is holy, but in the knowledge that without Jesus destroying the works of the devil, we couldn't do it. We could not do it. The only way to fight uh, sin as a Christian is to know that it's been forgiven. If you and I approach sin as something that has got to be sponged away by something we do, I've got to erase this mark against me. I've got this red... Everybody's seen uh, Avengers, right? Everybody's seen uh, the Black Widow's character. She's got red in her ledger, also known as I murdered a bunch of people. Okay, so that's what she did. Uh, So she's got red in her ledger and she's wanting the red removed. Well, you can't remove the red in your ledger... You can't remove the marks of sin by saying, okay, I know how to expiate that sin or erase it. I know how to do that. I'm going to do a bunch of good stuff. I'm going to do a bunch of good things. I'm going to prove, I'm going to go to church more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to sign up for all the Bible studies in 2022. I'm going to, I'm going to be nice. I'm not going to cuss at people and they cut me off in traffic. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to give money every time the little ladies ring in the belt, Salvation Army out in front of the store. I'm, I'm going to be a better me. And that will erase the sin. It doesn't 
work like that. And even though some of us, well, we all know this, we still try to do it. Do, do you still find yourself trying to do something to prove it? I've got to prove. I've got to prove. But this verse, this story, this verse, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He, through his cross, has made an open show of the devil and his works and his kingdom and the glory of God and the joy of the Father, as the story tells us, is that we come to Him to receive forgiveness, not by works which we have done, but by faith in Him. That is how we live out this great story where Jesus has destroyed what Satan has done. You and I don't pick up the sword and attack the devil. Jesus has already destroyed the devil. The sword we have is the sword of the Spirit, and the shield we have is the shield of faith. Our combat is with the enemy, but it can only be done if we understand Jesus already won the battle. You and I are not winning that battle without knowing that Jesus has already won. In other words, our faith is not in us. Our faith is not in our ability to be a better us. Our faith is in Jesus Christ who died for our sins in our place and has done the work for us. We put our faith in His work. Specifically, when we're talking about sin, that Jesus destroyed it, crushed it at the cross. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Jesus came and killed a dragon on our behalf, slayed the dragon. And I love how the story says that the final blow hasn't happened yet. That's why we still have to contend with Satan. That's why we still have to contend with sin. That's why you're still tempted to be bitter or gossip or lust or be angry or steal, or cheat, or lie, or whatever. That's why we're still struggling with those things, is because it's not all the way over yet. But it's getting close. And every one of us, when we pass on, it's over for us. There is coming a day when Jesus is returning for His church, when it will be over period. And when that day happens, Satan's final defeat will be final and it will be over. But at that point, it's too late for anybody who has not surrendered to Jesus Christ to receive this destroying power of sin that Jesus offers through His cross to all who will believe. So, my message this morning is yes to us as a church, but also to anybody listening and anybody online that's watching this, you have to surrender to the destroying power that Jesus brought to destroy the sin in your life. And He does that through the forgiveness He offers through the blood of His cross. 
And I would just say, be reconciled to God. Whoever you are, wherever you are, surrender your life to Him. Be reconciled to Him. That is what Christmas is pointing towards. Praise the Lord. Just wanted to match Rob. Get you out of here at 1130. He was bragging about it last week. So I just had to come in. (laughs) But we'll make up for it next Sunday. We'll be here till 1 o'clock. Let's everybody stand up. I really, really do encourage you to go find uh, this online and go through those scriptures. It is such a rich... As I was reading it, and let me, let me just share one really clever thing. When he said, um, the great son of the high king lay slain in the bloody bed that he had made, that is, that's a reference to John ten seventeen, where Jesus says that I lay down my life. I lay down my life. It's very, very clever. Jesus is in the bloody bed that he made. He laid his own life down in that sacrifice. This whole story is filled with that kind of, uh, just really well done. John, John Bloom needs commended for that story. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you this morning that you are my dragon slayer. All of us that have surrendered to you have become recipients of that destruction of Satan's power. I thank you, Lord, today that we are not slaves to sin. We are not slaves to addictions. Lord, in our time we've become almost comfortable with addictions as we analyze them and label them. Lord, I thank you that in your word you came to destroy them. Wherever we are today, whatever's going on in this room, and whatever sin that may be struggling with or addiction, God, I thank you this morning and pray that everyone would see the hope and the light and the truth, Jesus, you destroyed sin's power in our life. And I pray that that reality of broken sin, because it's forgiven sin, God, that it would sink into our hearts, especially those that are struggling and fighting, and that we would walk into a new year, Lord, in a new understanding of grace and redemption and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you again. You came and destroyed the works of the devil. I pray that this week that would be powerfully true in our hearts and minds and that we would be able to spread the fragrance of your knowledge, Lord, in every place. We give you thanks for it and glory for it today in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Church, you are officially dismissed.